Hello, you've reached episode 84, season three. Today we have Ahmed Hassan back on. He is our buddy. You heard him on the race episode. You heard him on the HGTV episode. He is a former host of Yard Crashers and he's the best. We put together this panel of police officers from all over California, so please bear with us as the quality of our Zoom call was a little glitchy, but uh, we hope you'll stick with it. Uh, thank you to our newest patrons. We have Alexander and Jody. We love you. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the family. And Christy, we appreciate your support so much as well. If you don't want to hear commercials, go to patreon.com backslash mouse and weens to get these episodes ad free, as well as bonus content, outtakes, we have swag, we'll send you a welcome gift, and you'll get shout outs on our episodes. We also want your input. So meet us over there, join the family, and we look forward to having you. So let's get started. Everything you hear today will be on mouseandweens.com and we hope you enjoy the show. My name is Ahmed Hassan. I'm friends uh, with Julianne since I was probably age 17, 18 years old. And I've known her sister for just about as long and happens to be my aunt and is a good buddy of mine's father, technically his stepfather, because my buddy's white and is obviously not white. And I thought that these two plus would be great additions to a podcast where we get to basically learn a little bit and hear some stories around today's current affairs affecting people of color um, and police brutality and the whole country being sort of in a racial tizzy. And I say, we should talk to folks that actually work in law enforcement because it's not often that you get to hear from folks in law enforcement. I think law enforcement causes people to um, work that chain of command and unless they're at the top of the chain of command, you don't necessarily hear from everyday folks that have worked and or do work in law enforcement. So that was sort of how the ladies and I came up with, let's do that as a podcast. And I'm kind of glad that it is only this many folks because the more people on here, the more complicated it is to actually have a discussion. Yeah, so there you have it. this is true. So I'm Joelle, I'm Mouse. Welcome everybody to Mouse and Weens. Um, I'm the big sister one, Joelle, down in San Diego. And I'm Weens. I am the other half of the podcast, Julianne, and I'm up in Los Angeles. Happy to be here. Yay. I'm retired police from the East Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm the Aunt Ahmed, and I am a retired uh, law enforcement in Los Angeles County, still currently working in law enforcement. And I'm from uh, Northern California. Um, also uh, retired law enforcement from the San Francisco. I'll try to move to another location, see if that helps. Yeah, maybe. Well, like Ahmed said, we're, we're just thrilled to have you guys here. We appreciate you being here and taking time out of your schedule. I know um, we're all in various states of work and not work and retirement and all sorts of things. But um, Julianne and I put together some quick questions, but um, 
this is a good starter one. What was it that drew you to becoming a police officer? What what made you become become a cop? You want to start with that since you moved positions and now you get to qualify who you are? Sure. I hope this works. I'm a retired law enforcement from um, the East Bay, San Francisco East Bay. And um, I went into law enforcement primarily to help people. It was as simple as that. Uh, I had a previous job where I made a lot more money than I did as a cop. Um, but I didn't feel that I was helping people. I wanted to help people, especially people of color, because even, you know, because especially in the 70s, um, well, it looks like we're in the 60s and 70s all over again. But anyway, especially during that time, there weren't many uh, African-Americans in law enforcement. You could see that the culture showed it, you know. And so I wanted to join, be a part of that, and hopefully make a difference. And same with me. I pretty much started wanting to help uh, do something in my community. I've always been that type of person to, you know, reach out and volunteer and help in my community. And law enforcement just drew me. I was interested in law. And there really was no one that I could look up to and say, I want to be like that. But um, I was always, you know, taught to respect police and, you know, they're there to help. So it just drew me in. And I remember seeing my, the first female police officer I've ever seen went on a college campus uh, when I was going to college and set up the booths for, you know, if you're interested in career opportunities. And she was the first actual female officer that I saw. And she was Latina. And she ended up actually being my mentor. Uh, when I finally did join the force, I joined as a police cadet. You know, it fit what I wanted to do, taking the position in the city that I grew up. And it just felt right to me. And I was there 20 years, 20 years in law enforcement. And what do you do now? You said you're still working in it, but not... Yes, I still work in law enforcement. I've been retired from my department for over 20 years now. And then I started out working on the other side as victim advocacy uh, with the district attorney's office. And then from there, I was doing training and specialized in domestic violence, elder abuse, which I was then offered a position with the city attorney's office. So that's what I currently do now. And I've been doing that for the last 18 years. And um, still work with police officers, do investigations. So I work as a criminal investigator at this time. Wow. It's still in the court system. Yeah. So boy, already between what we've heard from you guys, you guys have seen a lot <laughs> already. And then we have, how did you get into it? I don't even know your story. Well, I, um, I happened to be in the military at the time and I was over halfway to my retirement and I got heavily recruited by, um, department in the city where I was working and um, I was already in military police but they made it incredibly attractive because I was working like 28 days out of the month and they were working four days a week and uh, looked pretty nice and it turned out to be great I loved the, the work I loved the job and the other thing is um, just as a female I have five brothers and no sisters but my mom was a, a feminist and very much in the 60s, you know, for women's rights and 
And uh, those jobs opened up in my lifetime. I originally wanted to go to West Point, but I couldn't because they didn't allow women. So I felt like, you know, they got these jobs open for us, my mother's generation, and I'm going to take one. And that was part of it. Good for you. It's awesome. Yeah. She is kind of a, a badass, if anybody wants to know. She <laughs> she did like, she had to learn Russian intel and all sorts of crazy stuff. She's got stories. So, oh yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. And I was still in the military, too. She is married, too, is also a retired police officer. So there's double yep. double the fun. Yeah. <laughs> I remember asking him why he got into it, and it was also to serve the people. He had said... Yeah. He said he really wanted to go into help. And it sounds like all of you come from that same spirit. Absolutely. You'll find that in most cops, I think. We're sponsored by the Homeschool Buyers Co-op. Keeping my kids busy and on track with school has been overwhelming. There are a million choices online. That's why I'm so excited to find the Homeschool Buyers Co-op. They've done the work for me, researching and listing the best curriculum organized by grade level. And because of their large buying power, I get up to 90% off retail prices. They even have classifieds for used materials. So visit homeschoolbuyerscoop.org and use referral code WEANS to sign up for free and get 5,000 smart points towards your purchase. That's homeschoolbuyersco-op.org, referral code WEANS. Have fun. Hi, I'm Austin Rude. And I'm Phil Rude. And we host The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. Clever name. Each week, we watch a movie and bring our discussion to the mics. You can hear my opinions and Austin's wrong opinions about everything we watch. No, you're the wrong one. Get out. The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And then eventually, do you get disheartened? Are you not allowed to help like you originally thought you could? Is there a lot of red tape? Or did you feel like you were able to do what you came in to originally do? Well, for me, I'll speak real quick. I didn't really get disheartened. There are quotas. That's disgusting. Quotas dehumanize humans. That part of it, I I just didn't like. And I didn't ever get disheartened with it. Um, I loved it. Was that the same with you guys with quotas? Well, yeah. I, you know, the quotas or the requirements that it took to you know, get out there and to produce the work or do the work. Yeah, I didn't, wasn't you know, thrilled about that, but it, it was part of what needed to be done. And I mean, the majority of my time was spent on patrol, working patrol and, you know, trying to push to get to <laughs> those next levels. And I think the most difficult thing for me was you're always, um, or at least I had to work to prove to do, you know, that I can do the job just as good, if not better. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle because you're dealing with people out there in the streets that don't necessarily like, uh, may not like you, then you have that. And then you have to go within the department and deal with that same type of uh, those issues. You know, I did the job, you know, to the best of my ability, to the pride that I had and that I took in doing the work. You know, I was there for the community and the people that I serve. Yeah, I would imagine being female for both of you ladies, was that constantly having to prove yourself as well? Mm -hmm. And it's funny that uh, listening 
you know, I, I almost took a stint in the military and um, <laughs> backed out out of it, you know, just prior to signing that document, I guess, thinking of what I would have to deal with and go through in the military. So, yeah, the military is rough that way. Yeah, it's just such a, it feels like such a good old boys club and there's so much secrecy and quiet and everybody's protecting each other. And I mean, especially now seeing all this stuff going on with police brutality and, you know, the bad apple in the group and then kind of the whole force is maybe protecting that one person or doesn't want to put themselves out there. Do you guys see that going on or did you see that in, in what you've dealt with? like George Floyd and how people were watching what was going on. And it was kind of an unspoken brotherhood also as well to add mm -hmm. to that. Dane looked like he had something to say. You want to. I think there has been change. It's, it's slow, very slow change. I see more ranking officers of color today than when I was there. Uh, I was a supervisor. I was a sergeant and um, there is some change. As far as quotas, we never had quotas. What we did was if our officers weren't making walking stops, talking to people, getting out into the business district, if they weren't doing those things, we would know it because we have radio tapes. Um, we can tell when people are working or not. We can tell by the amount of reports that they're turning in. And, um, you know, exactly. Yeah. You know, back did you have in traffic quotas? No. Oh, see, that's the thing that really good. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. As a matter of fact, if you didn't work traffic, if you didn't work traffic, you don't you don't have traffic quotas. But the guys that are working traffic, that's exactly what they should be doing. That's their job. Yeah. So so if they're not doing their job, mm -hmm. uh, there's something wrong. But for the rest of us that didn't work traffic, uh, we didn't have quotas. I tended to make more. Um, rest. I don't know why, but it just seems to be. And so I had the most arrest in that than anybody in the station. But I wasn't setting a quota for myself. You know, I wasn't doing it because I needed to make this many arrests. I only did it because it was necessary at the time. The person needed to go to jail. There was no pressure to get anything done other than a sergeant saying, hey, look, sir, it looks like you're taking a lot of code sevens. You're off at the coffee shop or you're stopping here and you're stopping there and you're not getting a lot of work done. Let me, I need you to get some more work done. And I don't want to have to have this conversation, you know, but never uh, documented quotas. As a matter of fact, it's against state law. Absolutely. And pr I'm probably pretty sure it's still on the books. It's still against the law. It was against the law then. Just a recap on not really quotas, but sort of just expectations and regularity that is looked at within law enforcement. And that's what I've always heard. Is that the same? Would you agree? That it, that's just kind of how it's set up when it comes to quotas. Or There's a level of work, I would think, of any department that wants to see their officers doing the work that they're hired to do and that we're expected to do, and that taxpayers pay us to do. If someone's being injured or hurt or someone's breaking the law right there in front of you, yeah, you have an expectation. The quotas that I know uh, when you talk about, there's a generation of TIF tickets. Yeah, we had a 
a traffic enforcement, but patrol officers at the time when I first started also was expected to generate a certain number of tickets. And at one time we were even writing uh, on graveyard parking tickets. It's, it's revenue, it generates money. Exactly right. And if there's a certain level of expectation that is, you know, what we're said, well, in every night, five days a week, you're required between the hours of, of no parking between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. And in your area, you're supposed to generate or, or write 100 parking tickets a night. That's a quota. <laughs> you yeah, know, that's yeah. a quota. So yep. and it generates revenue for the city. Got it. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that's what they do. James, right, though, it's illegal. It's against the law. The Q word is not used, but there are certain expectations of regularity or normality that are expected. So if that's yeah. not happening, then there's conversation around it. Right. And, you know, we're, we're, it's an expectation. You know, how many uh, FIs or field interviews, how many people have you stopped and talked to? or to get information. It's a level of work. It's a level of work. You guys sound like you had reasonable departments. Mine was generalist. Different departments do things differently. Like, um, for example, the department that I worked for, uh, if you work patrol, you do all your own evidence work. You do your own booking. You do your own all your own follow-up. Some departments have jailers. You just drop somebody off, or they have evidence techs. They have all kinds of stuff, but we're required to do everything. And on top of that, you have quotas, and you can't control how many cases you have in a day that come in. You might have, you know, four or five felony cases right in a row, and you still have to write your 10 tickets, you know, so you wind up writing tickets and and you're required to have like so many felony cases, so many administrative tickets, so many moving tickets. It's just, you know, that's where I work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're basically looking for <laughs> when it might not be there. Anything. Yeah. You're moving, you're getting it. Yeah. Did that ever lead to unnecessary uh, interactions, yeah. arrests, all that? And do you think that's still going on now? Is that part of what is going yes. on in the current? Uh, and not in, in my department, it's, it's pretty exclusively, um, it's a wealthy white community. So I can't speak to that. Um, I just know that that does happen in other departments. So it's just you know, a way of treating the public like they're not humans. I mean, it's a revenue generating thing. Well, now yeah. we're talking when you get on the uh, profiling and was that going on? Yeah, it was, especially early on. And it still does to, yeah, I mean, I'm just speaking of what I recognize as what was profiling at the time. And now they're talking about these, uh, you know, what's in the LAPD gang database, placing people's names on there that absolutely have no reason to be there because they're not gang members so i mean was that yeah a lot of that was happening and the thing is from my experience my personal experience because i worked in a, in the city where i grew up i knew a lot of people i knew who was who who was doing what for the most part and who were associates i think the issue and then at the time when i was hired i was the third 
um, black female on my department and only the second in working patrol. So the other black female was a uh, clerk at the police station. So there were only two black women working patrol at that time, one Latina and one uh, female white detective at the time. And so this is, I'm talking 79, 80. So this is in the early 80s. So we're up against what we're um, having to, uh, you know, meet up to those expectations. I don't know. It, it was a good and a bad to it because I knew who I was dealing with. So I guess I really didn't do profiling because <laughs> I knew who was who. I got to tell you something that was so egregious that happened with me. It was, um, I didn't, I came from uh, the peninsula and actually when I went to this department, I was living all over the world and I got recruited heavily by this department, but I was not, I couldn't believe just, it's so different. I felt like I was in the wild, wild west. And um, there was actually a lieutenant that we had that had these special projects on Friday and Saturday night. They called him, I don't want to say what the name of it is because I. Uh, somebody might recognize it, but I don't want to get into a big deal. But um, they actually said, we want you to get all of the blacks, and that's not the term they used, out of town by sundown. This is in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. They have sundown laws in the South, but this is just so atrocious and so egregious. It, it was appalling, and at the time, I'm married to a black guy. I couldn't even believe he said it in front of me. You know, it's just a different place. Crazy, crazy different place. And this is a, this is the same time period you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, and there was nothing. Um, when you look at, I mean, we have to go back and look at the history of all this. This is still happening. The difference now is, you know, people pull out a video, a phone, you can record this stuff. They yeah. can't, you know, no one can do it and get away with it so much anymore because there's videos, there's cameras. And I can't deny it. You, you can't, and you can't close your eyes to it. And it brings me to, when I think about, um, I was looking at some of the questions and I know maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I know there was some, uh, a question regarding uh, the Rodney King incident and with what happened with George Floyd. And here we are, we're still talking about these same issues, these same problems. And the way police go into a, a community, white police officers go into minority communities and police, it's still happening. I look back, the Watts riots, I was five years old watching this on television. My daughter was five years old standing and watching TV during the 92 riots mm -hmm. after the Rodney King verdict. We're watching it on TV. I got called in uh, to work uh, on an emergency call out in our city because of these riots. And as I'm gearing up, I'm watching my daughter stand in front of a television, wow. watching this madness play out on TV, which brought back memories of me standing in front of the TV watching the Watts riots and asking, why is this happening? So you, you see, it, it's the emotions and everything that goes with it. You're standing in the middle of, I, I'm, I'm on both sides here. Yes, I work in law enforcement. I take 
pride in what I do. I work within the community. We risk our lives to go out there and work in these communities and work for the people. And we're, we wear the uniform. And we work with the bad apples. You know, there's, there's a handful of people that do this. And they get caught. But it's, it's across the board. Yeah. Now, when you went through training, did they kind of tell you, look, this is going to happen. And if you see one of your coworkers, one of your colleagues doing this, that, and the other, this is how we handle it. No, I've never been told that, but I have spoken up against it. I've, sp- I've seen it happen. And I have, you know what, this code of silence, this, and that's why I personally never felt like I really fit into that law enforcement category. Because right is right and wrong is wrong. And here's the thing. An officer is there to enforce the laws. To enforce. If a crime occurs, we enforce the law. That we have enough evidence, that person goes to jail. That's it. We, we do the investigation. We're not judge. We're not the jury. And we are damn sure not the executioner. Thank you. You know, we've had, we've handled, and I'm sure all of us have handled cases where or been in situation your adrenaline's going mm-hmm. uh, want to see justice but we don't met out justice we're there to do the arrest and we have to go through a judicial process and i've 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 been in a lot of situations and my adrenaline's up and i'm human i'm angry but you got to have control they, they don't teach you de-escalation, or do they? They do. But they don't teach you de-escalation against your fellow officer. Yeah, you're right. Because when an officer is in training, they're assuming everyone is a law-abiding, justice, uh, law-upholding officer. So they're not there to police other officers. They're all there to police the public. Right. We're not policing each other because you're supposed to already know what to do and what right. not to do. But there are there always are a certain percentage, and no matter what you're de- you're dealing with humans, there's always a certain percentage of them that are rotten. Absolutely. And and just remember, where are these officers coming from? They're coming from the communities. They're coming in yep. with whatever their um, ideas are about society, about the world how they grew up. I've done training. I've trained young officers coming in. And I trained a young white male officer from Midwest America and had never had really any interaction with minorities. Yeah. He, he was my trainee. And for him, just his views, we're in an area you, you, you call, do a couple of stops, you know, talk to these young men, you get their information, and we get back in the car, and basically he said this particular area of the city, Northwest, it's low to, you know, mid-income to low-income. Crime was high. Crime was very high in that area. And then for him to make a blanket remark that says all of this area of Northwest is full of criminals, prostitutes, gang members, drug dealers, all this high crime, everybody, everybody's like, I said, it's not everybody. He said, yes, it is. I said, why would you say this? He said, because crime is jumping up here. 
I said, so you believe that every person in this area is a criminal? He said, yes. I said, you're wrong. We get in the car, we drive up the street, go around the block, less than a half a mile, I stop. And he says, he gets excited. Are we doing a search warrant? Are we doing a search warrant here? I looked at him, I said, no, I'm gonna go in and get my lunch. <laughs> and you're I'm, gonna meet the people and talk and, to them. Right, and I said, we just drove around the block. Yeah, you know what, yeah. these kids, they're little, you know, they don't even live in this community. They come from the outside. So the guys you talk to, or you know, your field interviews um, with these little wannabe drug dealers and gangbangers, they don't even live in this community. They come from the outside. These are good people here that have to deal with this congregation. Of, they have to live with it. Right, and, and they don't wanna live with it. No. Matter of fact, when we stop these guys, the, the apartment owner, who owned that apartment and worked very hard to keep gang and drugs out of his, off his property was shot and killed right in front of his apartment building because he was working with the police, trying to clean up the, 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 the gangs and the drugs of outside people that were doing this in his apartment building, trying to keep his apartment killed right in front of his building. So yeah, we gave it extra police service. But for this young man to say that everybody collectively, black and Latinos, it was a predominantly black and Latino neighborhood, all gangbangers, all this crime. It, How prevalent is, just, is that where uh, young cops come in? How much racism is coming from them? Is it mostly white young men that are have this viewpoint? Did you see a lot of racism in the force like that? Yes, or prejudice. I do, I do. And especially if you're, if that person is not open or has had experience with anyone of color and his views, his mind is already set because of whatever, under, the way he understands the world. Mm -hmm. Is there any training on prejudice to teach you guys, hey, watch out for the, we, we had an episode a while ago about race from different people's viewpoints and someone brought up that we, police are taught to fear black men specifically. Is that true? Is it underlying under the surface? I didn't have that experience, but that doesn't mean other people don't. But what was so egregious for me was a few years later after the incident that I mentioned about the sundowning, the same people that were in charge of that program came along and were giving race relations training oh. telling me how to not be a racist wow yeah <laughs> talk and about wow. irony Ugh. it's just so upside down yeah yeah but uh, i mean you have these people and 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 like said you know i don't know that they always come from outside the community but they're just a certain amount of people. I've thought about it my entire life, and I wish I had the answer of how do you get rid of this hate? You know, see, children aren't racist. You know, children don't see color. Somewhere in in the out from the outside or from within inside at the home, they're taught this. It's taught. And as far as fear, the fear comes from just not the oh, no. lack. Of Understanding, yeah. you know, 
and what what's being said or what they're believing. I think you're so right in that. I mean, just whatever your parents are feeding you, right? That's little stuff. But then or grandparents or uncles, media, yes. or your parents' friends. I, told you, I thought about this my entire life, and what's frustrating for me is I have. It's not just my brothers, but I, I've, I've really thought very hardly on this my whole life. And there are people who are just not the same. And I have two brothers, for example, that were little Nazis. They're three years different from me. They grew up with the same parents in the same environment. And they're little Nazis. And they, they were different as little kids. And they weren't like, I mean, as little kids, they just were noticeably different. And they're, they're still different. And I hate them, and they're awful, horrible, hateful people. And I don't know, you know, where or how to get rid of it. But the majority of it, I think you're right, is taught. But there are some people out there that are just like a born Hitler, a born psychopath. Sociopath. You know? yeah. yeah. But I also think that comes from what they're being told and what they believe. We have a very diverse family, extremely diverse family. When you have, um, I have a cousin right now, him and his wife, they have four adopted children. They're fairly young. They've adopted these children since they were babies. So the one, the oldest child, they all have the same mother. Uh, their mother's white. The oldest child, the father is black. The other two children have a white father. So now they're raising all three of them. So they're, they're all, there's all three siblings but have different fathers. So the, 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 the little, the youngest boy and sweet kid, and he goes to school and now he's being told by his friends that, you know, your mother is the N word. The parents are black and they have legally adopted all three of them. So now he comes home with this word and is calling his mother who who raised him and will continue to raise him and be responsible for him and it's he's hearing this word and because you're black i'm white you're not my mother but he's this just started since he started middle school so he's hearing this from the other kids He's being teased. He's being, uh, obviously now he's seeing this difference. And it, it's just brought up the, all this racial tension and issues in their household now. But prior to that, he was perfectly okay with identifying, mm -hmm. this is my mom, this is my dad, these are my siblings, here's my aunt, here's my cousin. You know, and now he's seeing this color difference and he's learning it from the kids at school who are probably bringing it from their homes and listening to their parents and um, and the president. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. And yeah. now it's become an issue in there. Now they're dealing with this um, in their household now. Do you wow. think that we have taken a big step forward with what's going on? Apparently, we read last night that this is the biggest protest movement in the wake of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, that we're out there and this could be real change finally. Is there faith in that? Or do we need to wait for the old 
just racist people to die out. I have hope, but but the protests in the '60s were a lot bigger, and um, and I saw real change back then. This is what's really disheartening to you as well. This is never over. You can't just you know get real change out of this protest and this movement and then relax and say we got it now. It's never over. Before you know it, they'll be back. The racist, the sexist, everyone. It's never over because it has to start. From the, it, it, you know what, the protests are there. The protests have always, always been there. They've always been big. The change, I think, when we look at what's going on in a lot of these, in our judicial system, you know, in, in politics, the root of racism is deep. It's deep. We're plucking at the stems that are on the surface, but until we get deeper in um, and when there's the equality economically, um, education, 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 and we have a, a, a better representation of society at the top, it, you know, mm-hmm. that's where the change will we really start to see the change. Mm-hmm. And then it's the views of so many people that are there already. I mean, you still have that good old boy mentality. It's sad that we're, yeah. What do you see? So in the, in the police force, do you guys see that? Like when, is the news portraying accurately what's going on? Are we sensationalizing the racist aspect of white cop versus African-American citizen? Do you think, what they're portraying is very accurate. No, I don't. You guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah. No, number one, we, we need to count the number of law enforcement officers there are and the number of law enforcement incidents that happen happens throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, I'd like to compare that to how many mistakes doctors may make and how many people oh, have died wow. under the knife due to mistakes. Uh-huh. And, and news travels fast, especially in this day and age. And um, I think that when you really look at it, when I really look at it, the incidents are still few. It's not like it was in Jim Crow. The incidents are still few. The other thing is that law enforcement comes from society. And society is made up of all kinds of people. and I don't think we're ever going to, I used to sit on stress oral boards. You know, I used to be one of the actors in the stress oral boards. I did that for years. And, um, Why don't you explain what that is? Okay. Um, when people are going through the process, the hiring process, they go through different steps. Usually it starts with the, uh, the written test. Once they make it past that, you know, and that probably filters out 50% of them. Uh, once they get past that, they start the uh, background investigation process. They talk to their family, their neighbors. They they pull up any records that they may have. They do NCIC searches. They then all in the oral interview. There's a panel, and the panel is usually about four people, maybe five. And the recruiters standing in the background. And the, so back then, I was younger, a lot slimmer. Um, <laughs> larger shoulders <laughs> and I had an intimidating look about me if I wanted to 
I was always the bad guy. I was the crook. And, um, and there was also a psych psychologist or a psychiatrist on the board as well. And that psychiatrist could call cut or the recruiter would call cut. And so when we're going through this, they would give them a scenario and it's a black guy, he's about five, nine or five, 10. Uh, he's wearing this, that and the other. He's walking east down parked on Main Street. So when you get the call, you need to stop this guy because this guy is known, a known murderer and he has to be stopped. Okay, or he's whatever the reason is. He's a known felon and we need to stop him and find out what he's doing. I walked in like a badass. <laughs> and so they would look at me and now this guy, he looks like he's about 6'3", but the dispatcher described his clothing and that fits that he's 5'9". Some would just let me go. And we found out that they were afraid because of my swagger and my size and they expected someone shorter or some would do what was expected of them. And those that did what was expected would come up to me and say, hello, hello, sir, how are you doing? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. How are you doing, officer? I'm doing fine. So I just want to talk to you a little bit. He said, and then I'd say, well, I don't have time to talk to you. I've got some place to go. And as they try to keep me there, you know, I, my anger would, you know, I'd show that I'm really get, starting to get frustrated and angry with them. And with every word I spoke, because now I'm getting in their face, every word I spoke, I would spray. You know, with every S, with every T, with every D, their eyes would blink because I'm spraying. <laughs> then they would try to use their radio and the dispatcher would come back. I'm sorry, uh, two Adam, three, two, uh, all of their <laughs> cars are tied up at this time. We'll get you cover as soon as we can, <laughs> which never happens wow. really. I've never had someone deny me cover in true wow. life, but that's what we would do in the scenario. And we would take them to the brink of where they would break down. But we wouldn't break them down. We wouldn't go all the way. Some did before we realized that they were. And there's been many times when, when I would just deny talking to them. After I sprayed in their face and chewed them out, I would tell them, well, do something, arrest me. I don't care what you do, arrest me, you know? And they didn't know what to do because they were untrained. I would walk away mm -hmm. and uh, as I'm walking away, there was one member on the board that would point in the direction that I needed to duck in because you know, people have swung at me from behind my back uh, or people have pointed their finger at me like it was a gun and make that motion, you know, and of course they didn't make it past that interview, but we did those things just to try to keep from having people make the same mistakes that they are making today. Uh, and that they've made before, you know, and then when they go through the academy, it's even tougher. Mm -hmm. I think that we're going to get some in society that makes it through and they are going to do the wrong thing. They are going to become jaded quicker than many, you know. Uh, I became aware, even though I think it was that said that she knew everybody in the neighborhood. I knew a lot of people that I had to make contact with later. Guys that, me, you know, I was 
I'd get in street fights, you know, before I was a cop, you know, I was, I was in construction, you know, and I knew a lot of guys and we did things and, you know, I was tough to begin with. And um, many of those guys, I took to jail later. Uh, many of those guys couldn't believe that I was in law enforcement. They said, oh, no, not you. No, I can't believe this because I came from the same hood. But I didn't do the things that they did, you know, <laughs> but I was able to survive in the hood. I was able to make my way through what it takes in the hood, you know, because there's always there's, in the hood, there's always aggressors, young men that live in the hood, black, brown and white, you know, have to really be tough to make it through the, or very funny. Those that have that are funny, they can make it through easy. But those of us that aren't, you got to be tough. <laughs> so when I went into law enforcement, yeah, I, I ran into people. I ran into a lot of people that I knew. There were some cops that I knew that were frustrated, especially those from middle to upper middle class neighborhoods that didn't grow up in the hood. They, didn't, they don't understand the hood. They come into law enforcement with a bias. They already think that, you know, they, whenever an African-American breaks the law, they describe them and they say a black man. Okay. When white people break the law, you don't usually hear them say a Caucasian male on the news. You know, the description is never complete when it's when it comes to Caucasian, but they do say black males. Mm -hmm. And so people unknowingly have biases, whether they think they do or not, whether they want to or not, they have biases. I heard somebody talking earlier about uh, living in a diverse family. Uh, I certainly did. My grandfather was white. My mother's father was white. She's half white. And her mother was black from the islands. My father's mother was half white. And her father was also white. Because those folks back then, you know, black men didn't marry white women. It was white men that took black women if they wanted to. You know, they had the choice. Um, so my family was diverse, and then we grew up being diverse. My siblings, uh, my cousins, myself, uh, we've all had diverse relationships and uh, never had issues. It's only when we get out in the world and we work with people that have issues. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's do some quick ones because... We want to gain some insight, and we know that this conversation doesn't really have a beginning or an end. It's just a seemingly cyclical conversation. But real quick, you three that were in law enforcement or are in law enforcement, a quick thought on defunding the police. Uh, Defunding the police, I would hope that if they do, they do it wisely. You know, people are... People are afraid of defunding uh, our troops. I think we should be concerned about defunding law enforcement as well, because those people that live in those neighborhoods, we, we really need to protect a lot of people that live really tough lives. Um, crime doesn't happen in my neighborhood, and I doubt that crime happens in any of yours, and not much at least. And, um, but in those several of those neighborhoods where law enforcement is really working and they're doing a lot of work, I think that uh, they need the money, they need uh, the resources to continue to do the job that they're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I hope 
If they do, they do it very wisely and really look at uh, what they're trying to do. Because to me, defunding the police means it's taking money away from law enforcement agencies that require training. You know, I, I know when I went, I got so much training because that's what the police do. They're going in to, to de-escalate. They're going, they're being called because there's a need. And it's true, uh, counselor, uh, mediator, <laughs> you know, we, you do it across the board. Do other professionals need to come in and, and help and do that? Yes. Uh, we had a program where a police officer, patrol officer was paired with a social worker. We did community policing back in the late 80s and early 90s. So I think most agencies see where there's a need for out-of-the-box thinking um, to help law enforcement deal with the issues in the communities. But I also do believe that there has to be some other sensitivity training and a broader mind opening of people on dealing with race relations because that is still is a problem continues to be a problem and i think that's where a lot of the training needs to go to but you you can't train someone to remove what you know they think they have to change their thinking they have to open their minds and, and be prepared to change you're not looking at this person of color, you're looking at a human being. This is a person. And we need some, you know, people need to be open to that, officers. Um, I think it goes back to what you were saying. You have so many really, really, really good cops. The majority, by far, huge majority of cops are willing to, on a daily basis, put their life before their own life on the line for you um, in a minute. And uh, over the years, you guys don't see it, but uh, all of us have seen, there used to be uh, social service agencies that dealt with people with mental problems and social service problems that aren't, they don't exist anymore. Um, they basically, through budget cuts and everything else, have been removed, and the police have, it's fallen to the police to do all these jobs that we were, we were not ever really meant to do. So defunding the police, I don't think is the answer. I think that that takes away from all the things. It, 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 I don't see any good coming from that. I just don't. I don't think most people mean it as a punishment. But when you say defund something, you better say fund something else to take the place of what we're doing. Because we're doing a whole lot of jobs out there that don't fall under police officer. Yeah, Julianne and I were watching a bunch of stuff last night, and I think it is kind of reallocating assets into other programs like that. So instead of, you know, completely arming police with the best of the best uh, protective gear, maybe they can downgrade that and put some of the money into more social services or things like that. Um, and I think that's what all of these guys are saying, but who's who's holding the accountability on, yes, that's exactly what. Right. And I'm sure it's different in every every area. And then there's yeah. also cities that have dismantled the police and rebuilt them with local force enforcement. And some um, people need to, some departments need to, and some don't. I mean, not all departments are bad either. Mm -hmm. You know, I I definitely see uh, where Floyd. I, I I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that. I cried. It it's. Um, 
obviously okay in that department to murder somebody slowly in front of the public, but that would never fly here. It yeah. doesn't fly. It shouldn't fly anywhere. It shouldn't. It should fly not. Anywhere. No. And and it doesn't. It shouldn't. Oh. Everybody that I know that does what I did are upset with what happened to Floyd. You know, there's no one that feels good about that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, my number two son is a uh, SWAT team leader. He's a captain with the agency that I used to work with. And he's been in the streets of Oakland. He knows who the peaceful protesters are. He knows who's on the left that are breaking because there definitely are uh, right-wing folks taking advantage of those opportunities. Uh, they're anarchists. Anyway, he, he called me one day and he was upset with me because I didn't check in on him. And he's really stressed. The first night out, he lost three of his men. And at the same time, it was when the security officer at the, uh, at the, the federal building, the Twin Towers was shot and killed. But uh, he was on that night. And the city of Oakland, and we were there as mutual aid, the city of Oakland have different practices than we do. So we use less lethal bullets, we use gas, we use the tools that we need. And other agencies don't. Uh, their mayors are civilians and they don't understand law enforcement, really. And I don't think that the gear that they have to wear, the, 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 the safety equipment that they use, they need it. Mm -hmm. And I agree, I mean. To have a lot, you know, we, I say we, even though I've been retired since 03, we need that stuff. I want my son safe. I want my friends safe. You know, they are there to protect society. And now I don't know who said it, but Joelle, I don't know if they mean they need. Okay, Kim, you were, you had something to say there. Well, no, I agree with you. And I, I you know, and same thing. I say we, I've been retired more than 20 years because we still have family and friends and people that are important, you know, in general, where officers need to stay safe and do their job. And there's a lot of good, I mean, you have a lot of dedicated men and women out there doing the work and to protect and to serve in law enforcement, in the military. It's heartbreaking. And as he, I agree, there's a lot of officers that were just brought to tears and, and watching this horrific thing play out. You know, you, you have to think about it. We're, you know, you, these are human beings out there too. We have emotions, we're not robots. You know, these officers are not robots. And then you get a few people out there and feeling they can just do whatever they want to do and um, exercise their hate and fear of people of color, people who are different from them or feel they have to met out their own type of justice. And you're going to have those few bad apples in these groups of, of really good, dedicated officers. I've worked with some of the best people. They've had my back. I've had theirs. And there's no question. And then you get a handful, you know, one or two, a few out there that just feel that they can do whatever they please. Do you think that the training needs to be such that um, the whistleblowers are more protected? That can money go into that? Something changed there? Yeah, and it should. Yeah. It should. Because the, the whistleblower. If you want to get change, 
you got to get people out to vote. I mean, it comes from the top. When you got a when you got a president that you know pardons all his friends and breaks the law routinely, it tends it, people lead by example, and that emboldens the bad people that in society and police work and everywhere else. I don't know if you saw one meeting that Trump had with the, with the police officers where he told them all, don't be so careful when you put them in the backseat of the car, you know, with their heads. He's basically saying, smash their heads into the car. Don't, you know, don't protect them. And um, it starts right. from the top. And all the bad hombres, right? All the bad guys coming in from everywhere else. It's just, yeah. They're emboldened. And it's true. Yeah, they come out of the woodwork. Yeah. yeah. They're always there. But I want to. I want to say something as my last thought. One, thank you all for making the time to step out of your roles in law enforcement. I know you've been retired for a while, but both the ladies, um, I appreciate hearing from you guys. Um, I appreciate that two of you are people of color who do not exercise racist notions in your day to day life, and that, or what we're calling fourth fire is someone <laughs> who does the same thing as a white woman on the other side. So one, I appreciate and applaud all of you for just how you live your lives as human beings, let alone as officers who enforced the law or still enforce the law. Yep. One thing I will say on my way out, and it makes me sad, but I think it's very true, is that it is changing. It's changing so slow, and we're so sick of still hearing the same that you heard when you were five years old and then watching your daughter do the mm -hmm. same thing at five years old, which she might still watch her daughter do a third generation, it is changing so slow. It's changing extremely slowly. I appreciate everybody on this panel because I know that at least the six of us are doing our own little part to make a difference, to listen mm -hmm. to somebody to hear the other side of it, to come up with a peaceful resolution. And I think that's how it's going to continue to change is each one, teach one, teach three if you can, mm -hmm. but at least teach one. And I know that the six of us are doing that. So I thank you all. Yep. You guys are amazing. Protect and serve. I, I love it. Thank you so much for being here. We so appreciate you. Yes. Thank you, thank you everybody. Thank you. thank you guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Everything from this episode is on mouseandweens.com, and the video version is on YouTube. We'd love your feedback, so please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Also, please share and tell your friends, because that is the best way we can grow. Follow us on all the socials at mouseandweens.com, where we have been posting donation sites and causes that we believe in. Our private Facebook group has behind-the-scene photos, and our Patreon has commercial-free episodes. The full unedited episode, videos, outtake swag, and more bonus content. So we hope you become part of the family and join us there. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Red and blue, black and white. Who is to say what's wrong or right? Dim and bright and dark and light. Everybody sleeps tonight. Everybody sleeps. Everybody sleeps.